This is Chapter 35 of Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Volume 2, Book 2, Chapter 35, The Heir of France is Crowned. It was here that we saw again the Grand Master of the King's Household, in whose castle Joan was guest when she tarried at Chinon in those first days of her coming out of her own country. She made him bailiff of Troyes now, by the King's permission, and now we marched again. Chalon surrendered to us, and there, by Chalon in a talk, Joan, being asked if she had no fears for the future, said, Yes, one, treachery. Who would believe it? Who could dream it? And yet, in a sense, it was prophecy. Truly, man is a pitiful animal. We marched, marched, kept on marching, and at last, on the 16th of July, we came in sight of our goal, and saw the great cathedral towers of Reims rise out of the distance. Huzza after huzza swept the army from van to rear, and as for Joan of Arc, there, where she sat her horse, gazing, clothed all in white armor, dreamy, beautiful, and in her face a deep, deep joy, a joy not of earth, oh, she was not flesh, she was a spirit. Her sublime mission was closing, closing in flawless triumph. Tomorrow she could say, It is finished. Let me go free. We camped, and the hurry and rush and turmoil of the grand preparations began. The archbishop and a great deputation arrived, and after these came flock after flock, crowd after crowd of citizens and country folk, hurrying in with banners and music and flowed over the camp, one rejoicing inundation after another, everybody drunk with happiness. And all night long Reims was hard at work, hammering away, decorating the town, building triumphal arches, and clothing the ancient cathedral within and without in a glory of opulent splendors. We moved betimes in the morning. The coronation ceremonies would begin at nine and last five hours. We were aware that the garrison of English and Burgundian soldiers had given up all thought of resisting the maid, and that we should find the gates standing hospitably open and the whole city ready to welcome us with enthusiasm. It was a delicious morning, brilliant with sunshine, but cool and fresh and inspiring. The army was in great form, and fine to see, as it uncoiled from its lair, fold by fold, and stretched away on the final march of the peaceful coronation campaign. Joan, on her black horse, with the lieutenant-general and the personal staff grouped about her, took post for a final review and a good-bye, for she was not expecting to ever be a soldier again, or ever serve with these or any other soldiers any more after this day. The army knew this, and believed it was looking for the last time upon the girlish face of its invincible little chief, its pet, its pride, its darling, whom it had ennobled in its private heart with nobilities of its own creation, call her Daughter of God, Saviour of France, Victory's Sweetheart, the Page of Christ, together with still softer titles, which were simply naive and frank endearments, such as men are used to confer upon children whom they love. And so one saw a new thing now, a thing bred of the emotion that was present there on both sides. Always before, in the march past, the battalions had gone swinging by in a storm of cheers, heads up and eyes flashing, the drums rolling, the bands braying paeans of victory. But now there was nothing of that. But for one impressive sound, one could have closed his eyes and imagined himself in a world of the dead. 
that one sound was all that visited the ear in the summer stillness just that one sound the muffled tread of the marching host as the serried masses drifted by the men put their right hands up to their temples palms to the front in military salute turning their eyes upon joan's face in mute god bless you and farewell and keeping them there while they could they still kept their hands up in reverent salute many steps after they had passed by every time joan put her handkerchief to her eyes you could see a little quiver of emotion crinkle along the faces of the files the march past after a victory is a thing to drive the heart mad with jubilation but this one was a thing to break it we rode now to the king's lodgings which was the archbishop's country palace and he was presently ready and we galloped off and took position at the head of the army by this time the country people were arriving in multitudes from every direction and massing themselves on both sides of the road to get sight of joan just as had been done every day since our first day's march began our march now lay through the grassy plain and those peasants made a dividing double border for that plain they stretched right down through it a broad belt of bright colors on each side of the road for every peasant girl and woman in it had a white jacket on her body and a crimson skirt on the rest of her endless borders made of poppies and lilies stretching away in front of us that is what it looked like and that is the kind of lane we had been marching through all these days not a lane between multitudinous flowers standing upright on their stems no these flowers were always kneeling kneeling these human flowers with their hands and faces lifted toward joan of arc and the grateful tears streaming down and all along those closest to the road hugged her feet and kissed them and laid their wet cheeks fondly against them i never during all those days saw any of either sex stand while she passed nor any man keep his head covered afterward in the great trial these touching scenes were used as a weapon against her she had been made an object of adoration by the people and this was proof that she was a heretic so claimed that unjust court as we drew near the city the curving long sweep of ramparts and towers was gay with fluttering flags and black with masses of people and all the air was vibrant with the crash of artillery and gloomed with drifting clouds of smoke we entered the gates in state and moved in procession through the city with all the guilds and industries in holiday costume marching in our rear with their banners and all the route was hedged with a huzzaing crush of people and all the windows were full and all the roofs and from the balconies hung costly stuffs of rich colors and the waving of handkerchiefs seen in perspective through a long vista was like a snowstorm joan's name had been introduced into the prayers of the church an honor theretofore restricted to royalty but she had a dearer honor and an honor more to be proud of from a humbler source the common people had had leaden medals struck which bore her effigy and her escutcheon and these they wore as charms one saw them everywhere from the archbishop's palace where we halted and where the king and joan were to lodge the king sent to the abbey church of st remy which was over toward the gate by which we had entered the city for the saint ampoule or flask of holy oil this oil was not earthly oil it was made in heaven the flask also the flask with the oil in it was brought down from heaven by a dove it was sent down to st remy just as he was going to baptize king clovis who had become a christian i know this to be true i had known it long before 
for Père Front told me in Doremy. I cannot tell you how strange and awful it made me feel when I saw that flask and knew I was looking with my own eyes upon a thing which had actually been in heaven, a thing which had been seen by angels, perhaps, and by God himself of a certainty, for he sent it, and I was looking upon it. I, at one time I could have touched it, but I was afraid, for I could not know but that God had touched it. It is most probable that he had. From this flask Clovis had been anointed, and from it all the kings of France had been anointed since. Yes, ever since the time of Clovis, and that was nine hundred years. And so, as I have said, that flask of holy oil was sent for, while we waited. A coronation without that would not have been a coronation at all, in my belief. Now, in order to get the flask, a most ancient ceremonial had to be gone through with. Otherwise the Abbé of Saint-Rémy, hereditary guardian in perpetuity of the oil, would not deliver it. So in accordance with custom, the king deputed five great nobles to ride in solemn state and richly armed and accoutred, they and their steeds, to the abbey church as a guard of honor to the archbishop of Reims and his canons, who were to bear the king's demand for the oil. When the five great lords were ready to start, they knelt in a row and put up their mailed hands before their faces palm joined to palm, and swore upon their lives to conduct the sacred vessel safely, and safely restore it again to the church of Saint-Rémy after the anointing of the king. The archbishop and his subordinates, thus nobly escorted, took their way to Saint-Rémy. The archbishop was in grand costume, with his mitre on his head and his cross in his hand. At the door of Saint-Rémy they halted and formed to receive the holy vial. Soon one heard the deep tones of the organ and of chanting men. Then one saw a long file of lights approaching through the dim church. And so came the abbot, in his sacerdotal panoply, bearing the vial, with his people following after. He delivered it with solemn ceremonies to the archbishop. Then the march back began, and it was most impressive, for it moved the whole way between two multitudes of men and women who lay flat upon their faces and prayed in dumb silence and in dread, while that awful thing went by that had been in heaven. This august company arrived at the great west door of the cathedral, and as the archbishop entered a noble anthem rose and filled the vast building. The cathedral was packed with people, people in thousands. Only a wide space down the center had been kept free. Down this space walked the archbishop and his canons, and after them followed those five stately figures in splendid harness, each bearing his feudal banner and riding. Oh, that was a magnificent thing to see, riding down the cavernous vastness of the building through the rich lights streaming in long rays from the pictured windows. Oh, there was never anything so grand. They rode clear to the choir, as much as four hundred feet from the door, it was said. Then the archbishop dismissed them, and they made deep obeisance till their plumes touched their horses' necks, then made those proud, prancing and mincing and dancing creatures go backward all the way to the door, which was pretty to see and graceful. Then they stood them on their hind feet and spun them around and plunged away and disappeared. For some minutes there was a deep hush, a waiting pause, a silence so profound that it was as if all those packed thousands there were steeped in dreamless slumber. Why, you could even notice the faintest sounds, like the drowsy buzzing of insects. 
then came a mighty flood of rich strains from four hundred silver trumpets and then framed in the pointed archway of the great west door appeared joan and the king they advanced slowly side by side through a tempest of welcome explosion after explosion of cheers and cries mingled with the deep thunders of the organ and rolling tides of triumphant song from chanting choirs behind joan and the king came the paladin and the banner displayed and a majestic figure he was and most proud and lofty in his bearing for he knew that the people were marking him and taking note of the gorgeous state dress which covered his armor at his side was the sire d'albret proxy for the constable of france bearing the sword of state after these in order of rank came a body royally attired representing the lay peers of france it consisted of three princes of the blood and la tremouille and the young de laval brothers these were followed by the representatives of the ecclesiastical peers the archbishop of rheims and the bishops of laon chalon orleans and one other behind these came the grand staff all our great generals and famous names and everybody was eager to get a sight of them through all the din one could hear shouts all along that told you where two of them were live the bastard of orleans satan la hire forever the august procession reached its appointed place in time and the solemnities of the coronation began they were long and imposing with prayers and anthems and sermons and everything that is right for such occasions and joan was at the king's side all these hours with her standard in her hand but at last came the grand act the king took the oath he was anointed with the sacred oil a splendid personage followed by train-bearers and other attendants approached bearing the crown of france upon a cushion and kneeling offered it the king seemed to hesitate in fact did hesitate for he put out his hand and then stopped with it there in the air over the crown the fingers in the attitude of taking hold of it but that was for only a moment though a moment is a notable something when it stops the heartbeat of twenty thousand people and makes them catch their breath yes only a moment then he caught joan's eye and she gave him a look with all the joy of her thankful great soul in it then he smiled and took the crown of france in his hand and right finely and right royally lifted it up and set it upon his head then what a crash there was all about us cries and cheers and the chanting of the choirs and groaning of the organ and outside the clamoring of the bells and the booming of the cannon the fantastic dream the incredible dream the impossible dream of the peasant child stood fulfilled the english power was broken the heir of france was crowned she was like one transfigured so divine was the joy that shone in her face as she sank to her knees at the king's feet and looked up at him through her tears her lips were quivering and her words came soft and low and broken now o gentle king is the pleasure of god accomplished according to his command that you should come to rheims and receive the crown that belongeth of right to you and unto none other my work which was given me to do is finished give me your peace and let me go back to my mother who is poor and old and has need of me the king raised her up and there before all that host he praised her great deeds in most noble terms and there he confirmed her nobility and titles 
making her the equal of a count in rank, and also appointed a household and officers for her according to her dignity. And then he said, You have saved the crown. Speak, require, demand, and whatsoever grace you ask, it shall be granted, though it make the kingdom poor to meet it. Now, that was fine. That was royal. Joan was on her knees again straightway, and said, Then, O gentle king, if out of your compassion you will speak the word, I pray you give commandment that my village, poor and hard-pressed by reason of war, may have its taxes remitted. It is so commanded. Say on. That is all. All? N nothing but that? It is all. I have no other desire. But that is nothing, less than nothing. Ask, do not be afraid. Indeed I cannot, gentle king. Do not press me. I will not have aught else, but only this done. The king seemed nonplussed, and stood still a moment, as if trying to comprehend and realize the full stature of this strange unselfishness. Then he raised his head and said, who has won a kingdom and crowned its king, and all she asks and all she will take is this poor grace, and even this is for others, not for herself. And it is well, her act being proportioned to the dignity of one who carries in her head and heart riches which outvalue any that any king could add, though he gave his all. She shall have her way." Now, therefore, it is decreed that from this day forth Domremy, natal village of Joan of Arc, deliverer of France, called the Maid of Orleans, is freed from all taxation forever, whereat the silver horns blew a jubilant blast. There, you see, she had had a vision of this very scene the time she was in a trance in the pastures of Domremy, and we asked her to name the boon she would demand of the king if he should ever chance to tell her she might claim one. But whether she had the vision or not, this act showed that, after all the dizzy grandeurs that had come upon her, she was still the same simple, unselfish creature that she was that day. Yes, Charles Seven remitted those taxes forever. Often the gratitude of kings and nations fades, and their promises are forgotten or deliberately violated. But you who are children of France should remember with pride that France has kept this one faithfully. Sixty-three years have gone by since that day. The taxes of the region wherein Domremy lies have been collected sixty-three times since then, and all the villages of that region have paid except that one, Domremy. The tax-gatherer never visits Domremy. Domremy has long ago forgotten what that dread sorrow-sowing apparition is like. Sixty-three tax-books have been filed meantime, and they lie yonder with the other public records, and any may see them that desire it. At the top of every page in the sixty-three books stands the name of a village, and below that name its weary burden of taxation is figured out and displayed, in the case of all save one. It is true, just as I tell you. In each of the sixty-three books there is a page headed Domremy, but under that name not a figure appears. Where the figures should be, there are three words written, and the same words have been written every year for all these years. 
yes it is a blank page with always those grateful words lettered across the face of it a touching memorial thus domremy rien la pucelle nothing the maid of orleans how brief it is yet how much it says it is the nation speaking you have the spectacle of that unsentimental thing a government making reverence to that name and saying to its agent uncover and pass on it is france that commands yes the promise has been kept it will be kept always forever was the king's word note one it was faithfully kept during three hundred and sixty years and more then the overconfident octogenarian's prophecy failed during the tumult of the french revolution the promise was forgotten and the grace withdrawn it has remained in disuse ever since joan never asked to be remembered but france has remembered her with an inextinguishable love and reverence joan never asked for a statue but france has lavished them upon her joan never asked for a church for domremy but france is building one joan never asked for saintship but even that is impending everything which joan of arc did not ask for has been given her and with a noble profusion but the one humble little thing which she did ask for and get has been taken away from her there is something infinitely pathetic about this france owes domremy a hundred years of taxes and could hardly find a citizen within her borders who would vote against the payment of the debt note by the translator end of note one at two o'clock in the afternoon the ceremonies of the coronation came at last to an end then the procession formed once more with joan and the king at its head and took up its solemn march through the midst of the church all instruments and all people making such clamor of rejoicing noises as was indeed a marvel to hear and so ended the third of the great days of joan's life and how close together they stand may eighth june eighteenth July 17th. End of chapter 35.